0: It was a few years ago that the city of Pontiac decided to finally demolish the Silver Dome. Uh, And I was really interested in this. Uh, I told you before that Aaron and I had had an opportunity just a short time before that to go into the long abandoned Silver Dome and to see the state of it. And it was wild. Uh, and I wanted to watch the actual demolition. And my buddy, the reason we were in there is my buddy had, had filmed a movie there. He's a, a writer, a screenwriter, uh, and the, his, his film crew was there hoping to catch the demolition so they could put it up under the credits of the movie. And I'm sure you know what happened on that December morning in 2018. Uh, or 2017, I guess it was. Uh, they, they put the charges in place. They did all the stuff that they do beforehand. They put up the fence. They got the people at a distance. Everyone was there. It was 8 in the morning, and they were ready to watch a building become uh, not a building. Quite an awesome sight. And they counted down. Five, four, three, through the megaphone. Everyone, whoo, hoo. And people are filming on their phones. And, of course, there was an explosion. And there were plumes of smoke. And there was the smell of burning and then there was nothing it failed to implode the building stood turns out what happened was a couple of the charges the shape charges had not gone off but there was this time where it seemed like even though it was the home of the lions this thing would not be defeated this building was just so strong and the people who had set about trying to destroy it had greatly underestimated it. Well, of course, the next morning they did another attempt, and they were able to level the Silver Dome. But I think for us who are part of the Church of Jesus Christ, that moment was a great reminder. There are many people who look at the Church now, just like Aaron and I walked around in the Silver Dome, and they say, "This was once great, and now it's really fallen apart." It's past its prime. Just just get rid of it. And yet when the enemy sets his sights on leveling the church, he finds that because it was those, steel, those uh, steel girders holding it up, those beams that could not be broken, those things that are connecting us to Christ and holding us up in our faith are so much stronger than anyone would have guessed. And I believe the greatest age for the church of Jesus Christ is yet ahead of us. I'm not part of the very pessimistic... Uh, eschatological view that says, well, it's just going to get worse and worse from here. Why would we believe that? We have a promise from Jesus. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church. It's stronger than the world thinks. It's stronger than the devil thinks. And the church, I think, is even stronger than we understand it to be. Now, we're in Ephesians here, and throughout Ephesians, the church is brought up frequently. There's great emphasis on the church, and as the church is brought up, there's always a great emphasis on Christ as the core, the center of the church. In Ephesians, the church is described as a new person, a new kingdom, a new family, a temple, and a bride. And in each of these situations, the church is described then in relation to Christ. Christ is the groom of the bride, the head of the body the king of the kingdom, and we see here the cornerstone of the temple. And all of this uh, that we're going to see for a ways down the book of Ephesians points back to these beautiful words that we highlighted a few weeks ago in verse 4, but God. We'd gotten this description of who we were Dead in our trespasses and sins, following the devil, uh, following after the world. We were, like the rest of mankind, completely lost. We were damned, doomed, trapped, the whole thing. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved and raised us up with him. And seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And that, that saying there, those, those words, but God, and the description of how God enters into all our hopelessness and brings hope with a cross nailed into the ground that sends ripples out. From the center, and it goes out all through the book of Ephesians. It goes out all through history and certainly all through the church. And we're seeing here how those ripples go from the center of Jerusalem out into the Gentile world. We've been looking at how we as Gentiles are so very far away, those who are far off from God those who were without a savior and alienated from Israel and put out from the family of God, now drawn near to him. And here in our text today, he unpacks what that looks like and how God does it. And we see here two sides of the same coin, a description of God tearing down via what Christ did on the cross and God building up, tearing down the old, building up the new. This is a a repeated theme through the scripture. Uh, Look at Gideon in the book of Judges. Go out. Your father's got some uh, pagan altars there. He's got an Asherah pole where all sorts of awful, wicked paganism takes place. Knock that stuff down. Chop down the Asherah pole. Then build up a new altar, an altar to Yahweh, an altar to the Lord. Take the wood of the Asherah pole and build a nice little fire. And there I want you to make a burnt offering to the Lord. Tear down that you might build up. In Mark 11, we see this when Jesus cleanses the temple and it's sandwiched between this story about Jesus uh, cursing the fig tree for not bearing fruit. We see that, that first he will tear down and then he can build up. And what we see torn down is a couple of things here in Ephesians chapter two. First of all, in verse 14, he has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. The barrier in view here. It may be what was called the Soreg, which was a wall in the temple complex in Jerusalem between the court of the Gentiles, where anybody could go, and then where only the Jews could go. Uh, The inner courts, uh, the court of the women, the court of the priests, etc. But you could not pass that if you were a Gentile, because we were far off from God and alienated from Israel. And about every 10 feet on that wall were these signs that said, Warning! if you are a Gentile and you go over this wall, you will be to blame for your death, which will follow. That's the way it was worded. It's a foregone conclusion. Your death will follow and it will be your fault. So we were held at bay. It was a a very compelling wall, even though it was literally only about this tall, about two feet tall. It was was there, symbolic almost. And it becomes very symbolic here, much like the Berlin Wall was not only a wall, an actual physical barrier, but symbolic of that gap between East and West and communism and and the free world. So this is a symbol of all these laws and all of these uh, regulations and rules ordering Jews to remain separate (coughs) and keeping Gentiles, under pain of death, far off. And that's the next thing that Christ tore down. He abolished the system of the ceremonial law. And this is something that I think warrants a little discussion. But it says he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, breaking down in the flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. He broke down all these ordinances, commandments, this body of law that says you are out and others are in he did it by the cross reconciling us with god and with one another i think a question that comes to mind if you read this and you know your bible is wait a minute it says here that jesus abolished the law jesus said in matthew 5 don't worry i haven't come to abolish the law and the prophets but to fulfill them is there a contradiction here and i think that's worth looking at for a moment and the answer not surprisingly is no there's not a contradiction here between what saint paul by the holy spirit is teaching and what jesus was teaching we have to look first at what is being abolished or not when jesus says the law and the prophets he hasn't come to abolish to, to fulfill the law and the prophets is shorthand for the old testament they didn't call it the old testament because they didn't have a new testament to contrast it from they called it the law and the prophets and and it was all of what we would call the old testament So he's saying, I didn't come to take the scriptures as we know them and throw them out. I came to fulfill them. They all point to me, and I came to show you that. And yes, that might bring some rules to an end, but it brings them to their intended end. Me. We also want to look at what the verb is. In the Greek, it's kataluo, which really literally means to tear down, to break down. I didn't come to tear down these things. I came to fulfill the law and the prophets. The Old Testament by showing it how it has pointed to me here in Ephesians 2:15, he's not talking about the whole Old Testament he's very specific the law which is ordinances and commandments in this context those which kept us Gentiles far off those are what are abolished and it's a different verb as well it's katergeo which means literally to idle down we might say to power down to to render no longer effective to deactivate. Okay, he did that, again, by fulfilling the old covenant, thereby rendering it obsolete and inaugurating a new covenant. Remember Romans 3, there is then a new righteousness apart from the law that is in Christ Jesus. I think of a good example would be like the Eckert Power Plant here. You know, the three big, uh, somehow beautiful smokestacks? I love those. When we moved to, to Lansing, I was like, We don't want to buy this house. It's right by a bunch of smokestacks. And I'm like, oh, that would be very cool. Uh, But they're going to power that thing down soon, if they haven't already. I think they they, they haven't yet, but they're soon going to power it down. They're going to leave it standing because it would be very expensive to knock it down, and it's like a symbol of our community, but it's no longer going to be operating. Sort of in the same way, we we have the ceremonial law still standing. It's still in our Bibles. It's still pointing us to Christ, but it's no longer functional for us. It's deactivated. It's standing insofar as it, it reminds us of its purpose, but it's been broken down as, so far as being an actual dividing wall that keeps people apart, that keeps Gentiles at a distance. It no longer can do that. All the signs have been ripped down, and we can step right over the thing. I think of Romans 10.4 as well. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. There it is. Christ is the end of the law. And their uh, end, telos, the word both indicates the goal, the purpose of the law, like what is the chief end of man, and it means the end, like the termination, the conclusion of the law, the ceremonial law. We have righteousness a different way now. For all who believe, it comes by grace through faith. But he's not just tearing something down for the sake of it. He's clearing the way for something new. First of all, we see he is clearing the way that he could create one new man out of the two one new humanity and 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 so we want to emphasize that when we say Jew and Gentile are no longer separate in the church and in Christ it doesn't mean that God created some zen atmosphere where everyone now is able to overlook the differences and just kind of get past it but still are separate no he created an entirely new humanity to which all now belong who are in Christ in which perfect unity is the only thing that makes sense. And this is not tangential to what Jesus did. It's not like, oh, that's a a nice side effect. I didn't see that coming. No, this is the purpose. We see that in the middle of verse 15. This is Christ's purpose in going to the cross. One of his purposes was to break down that wall and to make of two one new humanity. Jew and Gentile now coming into the church, grafting in. We have all these different pictures in the New Testament. The point is, there is one church, and it includes people from every language, every nation, every tribe, of the whole nine yards coming together in Christ to be one. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. And this is a a big deal in the Scriptures. And, And when Christ came to nullify the law through His death, his purpose was to reconcile us to himself and to each other. I think in our world today, we've, we've separated those, right? We've put up a wall there. Well, I believe in Jesus and I'm saved. He's my personal savior, but I mean, I still don't like them and them and them and them. And I don't feel any need to show a lot of love. And I don't, I don't think it really affects my everyday interactions with people. It's a package deal. You can't take the first without the other to reconcile us to himself and to one another. They'll know you are my followers by the love you show to one another. Some of the early church fathers referred to the church as, quote, a new race, or a third race. They said there was Jews, there was Gentiles. Now we have the church, the new race. Clarify, Christianity and Christian unity do not mean that there must be Christian uniformity right? There has been a sense sometimes for Christians to all look the same, all talk the same, all walk in lockstep as if we're brainwashed and turned into automatons. doesn't mean stripping away all distinctives, but rather recognizing that the many differences and distinctives within this one new race are things that are given by God. Whether ethnic or cultural or personal or whatever, these are strengths for us within which we gather together and unite, rather than things that can divide they're given by god and they can like the old law either be used to glorify god in unity or to oppose him by reinforcing the idea that those people should be far off see theology matters you might you might think theology is eh, whatever that's for just uh, eggheads to study well theology just means your understanding of who god is also what god has done and your understanding of that has a real impact if you look at one of the worst examples of, of abuse in the 20th century, of, of uh, putting people off and far off and disenfranchising people, we'd have to all agree apartheid in South Africa was probably near the top of the list, if not at the top. The system of apartheid, it was a sophisticated and oppressive structure where, where basically they took injustice itself and sanctified it. And they said, well, we've got this theology that comes uh, from Stellenbosch University in the 1930s and 40s. Pro tip, if you have a racial theology that comes out of the 1930s and 40s, probably throw it away. But they took it and they ran with it. And they decided that they were able, the white people in South Africa, being biologically superior, to, quote, civilize everyone else. And so you saw what was just probably the greatest disenfranchisement of recent history in which 3.5 million black, Indian, and biracial people were taken from their homes. Any representation in government was just pushed aside and people were kicked out of office. It was essentially rolling back progress that the world had been making by centuries. And what was the root cause? Satanic theology in a supposedly christian seminary i'm not making a leap here this is i mean go read the wikipedia article not that that's how how i learned this maybe a little (laughs) but but theology matters how you view our relationship to god and because of that to each other has big ripple effects just like how we understand what god has done for us has has these ripples as well so in in ephesus And throughout the early church, this question, this theological-slash-practical question, can there ever be peace between these two groups, these two factions that are so at odds, it was hanging heavy in the air, and a lot of people had kind of just given up on it. You know what, maybe we'll all be Christians, but we'll just be separate, and forget about it. But the apostle comes in, and he has a shocking answer. He says, can we have peace? Christ himself is our peace. So if you've got Christ you've got peace. He's not just our peace with God, but the peace between these groups. He he so emphasizes this four times in this passage. In verse 14, Christ is our peace. In verse 15, he establishes peace. In verse 17, he preaches peace to those who are far away and peace to those who are near. Jesus is our peace. This shouldn't come as a surprise. It was very much broadcast And telegraphed from many many centuries before Jesus was even born in fact when we come together Christmas time and during Advent we read all these passages it's all over the place right Isaiah 9 6 unto us a child is born to us a son is given and the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called wonderful counselor mighty God everlasting father Prince of Peace or Micah 5 another popular Christmas text but you Bethlehem from you shall come forth me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose origin is from ancient days, and then it goes on, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. Is Jesus your peace? And, and is he your peace not only with the Father, making uh, payment for your sins and satisfying the wrath of God, but also your peace with your neighbor, with your brother and your sister. Now, the Greek word here for peace, erene, that he uses because he's writing in Greek, it's pretty vanilla. It means the opposite of war, the absence of hostility. But just like when Paul talks about love, God's love, he's not talking about something generic. He's talking about a very particular kind of love. So when he talks about the peace that we have in Christ, He's talking about shalom. He's writing in Greek, but he's thinking always in Hebrew. What is the difference between just plain old peace and shalom? I think the way is to look back to Isaiah 32 and get a little taste of it. Verses 16 through 18. Justice will dwell in the wilderness and righteousness abide in the fruitful field. And the effect of righteousness will be peace. And the result of righteousness, quietness and trust forever my people will abide in a peaceful habitation, in secure dwellings, and in quiet resting places. Shalom is everything as it should be, nest. It is an ultimate rest. Not some transient moment of, you know, you have that nanosecond of solitude at work when you just close your eyes for a second, and that's going to have to do for a while. No, we see a peace that comes in Christ that passes understanding and when he says he brings us peace it's not a ceasefire which could be broken in a moment it's not even a peace treaty that's been signed it is an eternal covenant sealed in the blood of god the son and for that reason true peace only comes through christ when we look back at the uh, verses 11 through 13 the, the beginning of this gentile stuff I read to you from Isaiah 57, in which God describes a people that were backslidden and always turning away from him and and always sinning. And what we read about them in Isaiah 57, 19 was, Peace, peace, to the far and to the near, says the Lord, and I will heal them. I'll turn them back to me, and I will heal them. And if you accept that peace with God... You become that new creation, that new man, that new woman, and you enter into this new humanity. It was in the the early, early 3rd century that Cyprian said those words, there is no salvation outside of the church. And a lot of Protestants grimace at that, and I say, right on, Cyprian, there is no salvation outside of the church. Not because it's the church that gives you salvation, but because if you're saved, you're saved into the church. It's the only way to be saved. You are saved when the hostility between you and God is broken down and the enmity and that wall between you and your brothers and sisters is broken down as well. And he makes one people for himself that he is going to describe in such beautiful terminology throughout this book. Verse 17, we read, and he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near." Who are those who are near? They're the Jews. Remember in Mark 12, Jesus said to that scribe, you are not far from the kingdom of God. They did a little back and forth, and he said, yeah, you get it. Then we have those on Mars Hill who laughed at the idea of resurrection. They were far off. We, the Gentiles, were far off, but, but he preached peace to all of us. And that little section, verses 16 through 18, shows how our peace with God, our vertical peace that we have, is our peace with each other. Not that it informs our peace with each other. Not that it should drive us toward slowly coming to terms with, yeah, maybe I need to have peace. No, that peace is this peace. Because Christ is our peace. And we, together, are in Christ. And just as our peace with God is not only the absence of hostility, but the presence of active love and acceptance and ongoing forgiveness that must also be how our peace with one another looks. I think a beautiful picture of it is right here, this holy meal that we just shared together. Holy communion. What's that word communion mean? Union with. We gather together for union with Christ and union with one another. And if you have in your heart some bitterness and anger toward your brother, Jesus says leave that whole thing on the altar and go and make peace and then come back. Because this relationship, vertical, and these relationships, horizontal, are not separate. They are together in Christ. Christ is the fulcrum that holds this whole thing together. And oddly enough, it looks like a cross. Verse 18, he goes on, For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Jew or Gentile alike, we have access in the same way. We have, we have reference here to the whole uh, the, the, all three persons of the Trinity. have to be so careful when you talk about the Trinity. The whole Trinity, not two-thirds. No, that's, that's heresy. We have reference here to every person of the Holy Trinity. That we all have access to the same Father by the same Son in one spirit. And his reference to all three persons of the Trinity should be a model for us of how close we ought to be to one another. That was Jesus' prayer anyway. His high priestly prayer... In John 17, remember, he said, Lord, that they would be one, even as I am in you and you are in me. The unity that we have in Christ would look like the unity in the Trinity. I mean, obviously, we won't achieve that, but that's what we are to shoot for. That's what Jesus prayed for. What if one of the three persons of the Trinity had gone rogue in the mission to save us? What if the son had said, you know what? I changed my mind. If you want them to be saved, you come down and die on the cross. I don't want to suffer for them. They've been nothing but nasty to me. What if the Spirit had said, look, you can send me, but I'm tired of shining the light on the sun. I, I'm going I'm to shine my own light. I'm going to start my own spirit thing, and it's going to be different from yours and better. Oh, that would have been bad news. Thank God that the holy God that is a triune God acted in perfect harmony to save us acted in perfect unity to save us. And now there is no difference between how Jews and Gentiles receive this offer of peace. If you hear anyone, you're watching TV and there's a preacher and he starts telling you that there's still two ways, one way in which Jews go to God and one ways in which we Gentiles go through the cross and then he starts bringing out end times charts, the channel buttons right there, just push it, save yourself some time and some confusion. And, you know, with me, save myself some blood pounded and squirting out of my eyeballs. If that rift between Jew and Gentile can be healed by the cross, there is no division, no ruptured relationship that can't be. If If that's how we come to the Father and we all go the same route, and because of that we're all in Christ, we're all one body, what can we ever expect To be different for us. Well, between Jews and Gentiles, I mean, the Samaritans and the Jews, they they were fighting and and trying to... The the Samaritans are trying to keep the Jews from building their temple and they're attacking them. Then the Jews go and destroy the Samaritan's temple. And they're really close. They're barely Gentiles. We say, "That's that's a lot of bad blood. And yet, God in Christ tore down that wall. And we think we've built up walls that he can't tear down? So then, verse 19, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. These last few verses of the chapter tell us both what we aren't and what we are in light of all this. He's been telling us what we were. Now he tells us what we are. We were far off. We were dead in our trespasses. Now we're made alive. Now we're drawn near. And if we, if we accept this peace that comes from jesus christ we're not only fellow citizens now in a kingdom from which we had been alienated no now we are members of the household of the family from which we had been estranged he wasn't kidding when he said draw you near near to me we're talking in familial terms what does it mean when a father draws someone near to them It means a big embrace and pulling someone into a hug. And I don't want to get corny or cheesy, but that's what's being drawn here. This picture that we are seeing uh, painted and fleshed out. He did not say, yeah, okay, you can come close. You can come outside the city walls and you can be second-class citizens. He didn't even say, okay, open the gate and let them in. No, he said, bring them into my house and they will be my sons and daughters. Come in. Paul here is using political, familial, and ethnic imagery to illustrate this new intimate relationship and horizontal relationships created in Christ, which means that the old divisions that are based on political, familial, ethnic, or whatever kind of categories cannot stand for those who are in Christ Jesus. He says that we are all built, one building on one foundation, the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Old and New Testament together. One building, one foundation. One people, one Israel of God. That is us. In whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. And I love, I love how he takes this the, the building, this very kind of cold building metaphor. We're laying a foundation, we're putting down stones and things, we're building something, and then suddenly it's an organism. It's alive and it's growing and what it's growing into is a temple, a dwelling place for God. That is a beautiful picture of the church. We are a building that is a dwelling place for God, but we are alive, not dead stones. When he says we are stones in the temple, he means that we are living stones And this temple, which he has been building for ages and eons, is the greatest building project ever undertaken. I think it's telling that when he says the word temple to those who are in Ephesus, Gentiles in Ephesus, their first thought is going to be Temple of Artemis, right? Right there in town is the biggest, greatest, grandest pagan temple in the world. And people, it was one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. That was like if they had BuzzFeed back then, there would have been like seven things you got to see. One of them was in their town, and it was this temple. You know what's left of the temple of Artemis now? Part of one column. And yet, what is God doing with this living temple? He has been building it for thousands of years, and it continues to bring the grace of of Jesus Christ and the salvation that can be had in Him to the ends of the earth. As new believers come to faith, God is shaping and polishing and placing them where He wants them, where they will serve best, that they can grow together into this dwelling for God. That's wild. The thought of this one column, the hopelessness of heathen worship false religion versus the the beauty and and this unstoppable expansion of the church of Jesus Christ. And yet, it often doesn't seem that way, right? You look at the church today, and it doesn't seem unstoppable. It doesn't seem like perfect unity. We're constantly building new fences, new walls, new barriers, digging moats, laying traps to try and separate ourselves from them. But if Jew and Gentile could become one, if that massive wall could be destroyed... That makes the berlin wall look like a joke the great wall of china look like nothing if that can be crushed into dust by what jesus has accomplished there is no wall that we can build that can stand in light of what jesus has done for us saint paul here wisely calls us to again remember who we were that there was enmity between us and god that is to say that we were actually god's enemies If you don't recognize that, you don't get the gospel. That you were an enemy of God, working against him, and you were affiliated with the other side. But God put that enmity to death when he died on the cross. And his death paid our sin debt. His death satisfied the righteous wrath of God against us, bought our redemption, and restored us to right relationship with God, and in doing so, restored us so that we can now have right relationship with one another. If his death and resurrection are powerful enough to overcome the holy wrath of a perfect God against sinners who, even in their greatest acts of religious devotion, can't help but double down on our sin again and again, how could we wonder for even a moment whether it's powerful enough to overcome our squabbles and beefs and prejudices? Why aren't we seeing this kind of peace on earth then, if this is such a reality? That's my big question when I read a text like this. You're filled with hope. You're filled with optimism. And then you're, you're slamming in against this brick wall of turning on the news. Oh, bad move. Or worse yet, reading the comments under the news story. Yikes. Well, let me at first remind you that God does not promise this sort of unity for all people. Only those who are in him. In fact, Jesus said he came not to bring peace, but a sword in a broader sense, as many who follow him would then be put out of their families and synagogues, excommunicated from their, their communities, persecuted by the world. But among those who belong to him, he said, there could be unity and there would be. Out of the Jews and Gentiles breaking on the wall, he would even make one. That's the kind of unity we should be seeing. But even among those who belong to Christ, Our old sin nature keeps us from perfectly achieving what God wants for all his people, and yet we ought to see forward progress. This means that where we continue to be far off from one another, others who are in Christ, whether it's within a church congregation or in the broader universal church, where we still are far off and pushing each other far off and erecting walls, we are sinning and we need to repent. Rather than say, why hasn't God already done this? Perhaps the question is, what can I do to further bring this into reality? How can I help to make a church both local and universal? in which all are one in Christ Jesus, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and it doesn't matter then whether you're Republican or Democrat or Libertarian or Independent, whether you're rich or poor, whether you're black or white or Asian or Hispanic, whether you're a hipster or a redneck or what's going on, but we are one in Christ. How can I move that football a little bit? I think a lot of it comes down to what can I not do? What can I... What can I? Refuse to do as a follower of Jesus that would lay another brick in that wall? And how can I just throw it aside instead? And how can I help tear down those walls? I think often the the success of the church's missionary endeavors comes down to the answer to this question, are we, the church, acting in unity? Or are we acting against one another as if we are on opposing teams? He ends with these words, in him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. That is a big job. Dwelling place for God. Not each of us individually, although there may be some truth to that. You're indwelled with the Spirit. You are a dwelling place for God. But Paul here says, together you're being built together and growing together into one dwelling place for God. That is something to keep in mind. You've got a, a building that's a house. Now, now, stay with me. And it's divided against itself? Will it be a very good house? It cannot stand. Abe Lincoln said that, ripping it off from Jesus. But yeah, yeah, that's, that's the, the obvious truth. If we have a house, a dwelling place, and it's divided against itself, it won't stand. It won't be an honorable place for us to host our Lord Jesus. No, it's going to be a pile of rubble. Let's be the church that Jesus envisioned, that Paul tells us is a, not only a possibility, but an actual reality. And let's move forward in that direction. Yeah, sure, God is everywhere. He's omnipresent. And yet, from the very beginning, he would come down in the cool of the evening in a particular way and walk with Adam and Eve. And in, amongst ancient Israel, he was present in a particular way in the wilderness as a column of, of cloud or a column of uh, fire. And then in the tabernacle and the temple, he was present in a particular way in the Holy of Holies. And now he has manifested his presence particularly in his church, the dwelling of God. And when the world looks at the church, what do they see? Squabbling and infighting and walls being built up? Or do they see one body, one family, one temple? Walk away from here with three truths. One, if you do not have peace with God, you can have it today, right now, because peace has been won by the cross. Christ is our peace, and not only do you have peace with God, you get the bonus of having peace with your brothers and sisters. Two, we can have unity in the church broadly and in each church individually. It is possible in Christ that the enemy is going to want to divide. Divide and conquer is the oldest tactic in the book. Every time I hear of a church splitting, it makes my heart break. That is the enemy winning a battle. But thank God the enemy will lose the war. And thirdly, our shared identity in Christ is the only basis for that unity nothing else, and and people are going to try and and come together around all sorts of other things and say, hey, we found a moment of unity here, they will be fleeting. In Christ, though, we can have unity that lasts. In Christ, we can reach across political aisles or cultural uh, differences and, and across even misunderstandings. We can wash each other's feet. We can be one body. I dropped my thing, and I'm picking it up. That was awkward, but it's over, guys. Because I, have, I want to just share one final, that's right, final illustration with you. And it has to do with Secretary of State uh, named George Shultz. He served during Reagan's administration. And part of his job was to meet with newly appointed ambassadors and and talk to them about what they would do as ambassadors of the United States to different countries around the world. And because these positions were often given out as political favors or to people whose background might not be in international relations and might not have the education that goes with that, he would always, before they left, he would point to a large globe that he kept in his his office, and he would say, before I'm going to send you out, you have to go over to that globe, and I want to see you point to your country so that I at least know you know where it is. And it went both ways over the years. Some people would flip it right there. Yeah, I've been studying up on this thing for a long time. Some would struggle, struggle, struggle. And he'd say, come back when you know a little more about where we're sending you. You need to know about it before you can go. But then one day, his old friend, Mike Mansfield, he was a a former senator. He was in his office. He was going to be the the, uh, ambassador to Japan, and he said the same thing to him. You've got to walk over to that. I know we're old friends, but I do it with everybody. You've got to walk over to that globe. You've got to point to Japan. You've got to know where your country is. If you don't know where your country is, I can't send you out. Go over there, give it a spin, point to your country. And the guy walked over, turned right to the Western Hemisphere, pointed at the United States of America, and said, that's my country. And from that moment on, instead of having them go through this thing, This is the story that Schultz would tell each and every ambassador. He would tell them that story and say, never forget, you're over there in that country, but your country is the United States. And I think that can be applied to the church as well. We are here. We've got all these divisions. We've got all these political infighting. We've got all this cultural stuff. It's worse and worse and worse. Social media makes it an absolute gong show. And yet, we've got to remember, our country, our citizenship is in heaven. Our, our ultimate loyalty is to Jesus Christ. And these things that are temporary, these things that are passing away, these things that seem so important and get our blood boiling in the moment, they should never be able to erect a wall between brother and sister, or sister and sister, or brother and brother. In Christ we are called to be one. Heavenly Father, I thank you for a challenging message to hear during political seasons during times of of political upheaval and cultural uh, schisms. And and Lord, we look around and and there is an awful lot of vitriol. Lord, I know that I have spewed a bit of it myself and I do repent of that. And Lord, where we have separated ourselves from brother and sister in Christ because of these things, we, we do repent. I pray, Lord, that you would soften our hearts this morning. We have just participated in the body and blood of Jesus at the Lord's table. We have acknowledged the peace that we have, the peace which is Christ. Lord, remind us through your Spirit that it's not just peace with you, it's peace with each other. And that we need to be, if we are going to be effective as your church, one body, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Amen.